Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We'll be focusing this morning on verses 39 to 55, but let's begin reading in verse 26 together. And if you have a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, grab that one and open it up. It should be on page 855. Luke chapter 1, the word of God reads, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And now our passage for this morning. In those days, Mary rose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, The baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to our home. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son and for your spirit, without whom we would have no hope and no life, Lord. We thank you and praise you for your word, which is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we can be encouraged and sharpened by your word this morning. We pray that you would grow us in an awareness and appreciation of your mighty works and your mighty grace. Help us to see, Lord, that you have truly done great things and that your mercy is for generation to generation. May you, Lord, fill the hungry this morning with good things. And may you help your people to know and trust you more deeply. And may our recounting and our meditation of this portion of your word and of the Advent story lead to our joyful adoration and ceaseless praise. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We are embarking on a journey in December to cover the events leading up to uh, and including the birth of Jesus, who the New Testament tells us is the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And for most of us, these things are fam familiar to us. Probably throughout the year, if you're doing a, a yearly Bible reading, at some point you come across these narratives uh, in your reading. And then in, in December, if you've been with us for any length of time, for eight years, we've taken time to just focus on Christ and his coming in the, in the month of December. If you've been with a Christian longer than eight years and been at other churches before us, no doubt in the month of December, you have in, in those places as well considered these stories. And so what we cover this morning could be quite familiar to a lot of you. But that could also have a, have a negative impact on the way that we receive and respond to these stories and the story of Christ's arrival because familiarity has a tendency to breed contempt. And so we can read these stories and pat ourselves on the back and think how wonderful and smart we are because we, we've heard all these things before and we know these things. And it can lead us to a sort of complacency and allow a posture of ingratitude to rule our hearts, not only this morning, but through the whole month of December. We can take it for granted and not be moved by it. And we can remain somewhat indifferent regarding these matters, rather than being captured by it, impacted by it, seeing a fresh vision of it, experiencing the joy and the excitement and the adoration and the wonder that we should have when we cover these things. It's also possible that when we consider these things, whether it's the first time you've ever heard these stories or you've heard it many times, it's possible that you respond to the arrival of the Messiah as portrayed in this text with doubt. Each of us has to respond to these things. There are truly miraculous and extraordinary things mentioned in this text. And they're recorded as historical facts by the author of this gospel. 
And so that puts us in an awkward situation. Do we believe it or not? Because at least for the author, he makes it clear in the first verses of his gospel that this is something that he has written down so that it would give certainty to Christians about the things that they have been taught. So we have a tendency to doubt, and yet Luke says he wrote these things to address that tendency to doubt. And so you and I will decide in our response whether we will doubt these things or believe them. Did they really happen? Are these things even possible? Or are they just allegedly supernatural claims? They're nonsense, uh, mythological fables, embarrassing remnants of unsophisticated and unenlightened and irrationally religious ancient people who were dumb and deceived. What do we do with these things? How do we respond to them? Each of us will have a response to these this morning, beloved. But what will our response be? And my question to you this morning is, what do you think the appropriate response to the arrival of the Messiah should be? What do you think the appropriate response to the arrival of the Messiah should be? Should we respond with doubt? Should we respond with ingratitude? Should we respond with indifference? Those are the three questions that I want us to think through as we work through this text together. So beginning with the first question, should we respond with doubt? What do we do? We have angels appearing and speaking to people. We have a virgin who's betrothed, but she, she's not married yet, and she has not known her husband Joseph yet. How, how does somebody like that all of a sudden have a baby inside them? What do we do with these things? We have, we have six-month-old infants leaping in wombs to the voice of a, a very special, important somebody's mother greeting his mother. What do we do with these things? Should we respond with doubt? These things are hard to believe. They don't happen every day. They are not normal occurrences. And so if you think, man, that's kind of crazy, I can guarantee you Luke thought the same thing first time he heard it. That's why it sent him to want to investigate these things. These things are crazy things. They are things that are hard to believe. And, and if you, we need more proof of that, look at Zechariah himself in the beginning of Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel comes to him and, and tells, appears to Zechariah and tells Zechariah that Zechariah, who's very old, and his wife, who's also very old, and who's been barren their whole marriage, has been able to produce no children. Gabriel says, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him John, and he's going to prepare people for the Lord. And while he says that to Zechariah, he's quoting Malachi 3. He's alluding to Malachi 3. He's alluding to Isaiah 40, that there is a promised messenger who will come before the Messiah. And so Zechariah sees the angel Gabriel, hears his message, and yet he says, how can I know that this will happen? And the angel Gabriel responds to him, I'm Gabriel. I've been sent. <laughs> I stand in the presence of God, 
and I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. Right? Hello? And it's not like I made up some weird stuff. I quoted scripture to you. And yet Zechariah is hesitant to believe. And so Gabriel says, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah had a hard time believing that he and his barren wife could really have the son and that he, the, that his son would be the promised forerunner that, that were, was prophesied 700 years before by Isaiah and 450 years before by Malachi. And even though those things were written, when it came down to the execution of these things and God sending Gabriel to speak to, to Zechariah about it and tell him about it, Zechariah himself had trouble believing it. But does that mean that we should too? Does that mean that it wasn't true? Well, time would show that everything that Gabriel said to Zechariah came to pass. And Zechariah's hesitancy to believe is contrasted with Mary's faithful example in our passage. And it's clear that it's almost like a a, a stark contrast between the two. The angel appears to, angel Gabriel, again, appears to Mary and tells Mary that she's going to conceive, even though she's a virgin. And Mary doesn't say, how can I know that this is going to happen? She says, how will this happen? There's a difference there between Zechariah's question and Mary's. Zechariah's looking for some sign so that he can know and verify that'll actually take place. Mary, on the other hand, is saying, I'm on board, but, but like, how is that going to practically work out? Because I'm a virgin. And she's told that the Holy Spirit will make that all possible and that nothing will be impossible for God. And this is what's amazing. Mary's response to the angel Gabriel after hearing that is, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a beautiful statement of faith. What a beautiful statement of faith. And Elizabeth clearly thinks that this is, this is a, a, a wonderful example of, of faith and faithfulness because when Mary comes to Elizabeth, Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so is doubt really an appropriate response. We see from a negative example of Zechariah that no, it's not. We see from the positive example of Mary that faith, not doubt, is the appropriate response to the the news, the good news of the advent of the Messiah. But perhaps you're maybe thinking at this point, I, I still have some doubts. Do you doubt Luke? Do you doubt him who said in the first verses of his of his gospel that that And inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, having delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Does that sound like a not trustworthy person? 
Maybe you're like, well, not there, but maybe, maybe other places. Who is this guy? Who is this Luke? Is he mentioned anywhere else? Well, yes, he, he happens to be a traveling companion of the, uh, the Apostle Paul, who the Apostle Paul calls him the beloved physician, calls him a fellow laborer, and says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, when he's imprisoned in Rome, that Luke alone is with me. And so if, if you have questions concerning Luke, I want you to just think about this. Read through his gospel, read through Acts, because he also wrote Acts, and I want you to say, does this stuff seem made up? Does this seem like a guy who wants to fudge historical details? Does this seem like a guy who doesn't know how things actually worked in first century Palestine? Does this seem like a guy who missed out and messed up on geography, on the people's names, on the location, on the distances between cities? Is this a type of guy who's taken seriously as a historian? Is this a type of guy whose claims uh, have been verified by other first century historians? Is this guy trustworthy or not? And then when you do that and read that and come back to me, I think you'll find you're like, wow, this guy's pretty good. But maybe you're still not sure. And just think about this. If you, if you were to fake a gospel to try to deceive a bunch of people, I want to ask you, would you attach Luke's name to it? When fake gospels popped up, what kind of names did they attach to them? <laughs> Names of the apostles who, who are the eyewitnesses, right? They, they, you have, you know, fake gospel of James and fake gospel of Thomas and stuff like that. They're attaching apostles to it to try to get it to gain the most traction. It, 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 if it was anything other than the truth, <laughs> there's no reason to attach Luke's name to a gospel. He's not an apostle. He's not an eyewitness and admittedly so. But what he has done is talk to them. And he produced a labor of love so that you could hear and believe these things and be certain. And so let your doubt be crushed. But maybe you're thinking, uh, I, I, maybe I don't doubt, doubt Luke, but I doubt the, you know, Gabriel thing. Okay, if you're going to doubt the Gabriel thing, you have to realize that you have to doubt both Zechariah and Mary's story, their, their testimony. <laughs> and already the fact that we have two different people testifying that this actually happened means that, you know, Probably a good chance that this thing happened. But okay, let's start with consider Zechariah. Are you going to doubt the guy who says, yeah, he appeared to me, but I didn't believe him? If you're trying to deceive people, why would you include that? Like it's an embarrassing detail about yourself. Everybody, like, if we're going to make the gospel, let's cover that part up or let's retell it and make sure I look good that I, I believe the angel. I responded just like Mary, but no, he didn't. And everybody knew that because he went dumb. He couldn't speak, and his, the people knew that he couldn't speak, and there's eyewitnesses to all these things, and he couldn't speak until the day when John was born, and he spoke John's name, and the whole city knew about it. Okay, so where, why would you doubt Zechariah? And then, what, you know, what, maybe you're like, I, I, was, I doubt Mary, and I'll just say that's messed up. <laughs> you're going to doubt Mary? Really? <laughs> How are you going to doubt Mary of all people? But how do, you, how do you explain that the details of both of their testimonies actually are mutually intertwining and that the information that Gabriel told, uh, told Zechariah and the information that Gabriel told Mary are mutually dependent on each other and that Mary then in response gets up and with haste runs to visit Elizabeth? How do you make sense of, of all these things? You have to hold them. 
You have to believe them. They're wrapped up and intertwined. You can't just pick pieces of it and, and separate it and rip it out. And so I think that if you really consider it, do you have good reason for doubting? You would admit that you don't. So maybe last you said, I just doubt that God could do that. I just want you to hear that. So you doubt God. You doubt God. That he could do that. That he who spoke the world into creation... That, that, in the, that he created all things in the beginning by the power of his word. Could he who, who spoke the world into existence not also cause a virgin to conceive supernaturally? And for, for, for many people, even Protestants, liberal Protestants, you guys, have become ashamed of the virgin birth and don't want to talk about it, don't want to admit that it's true, don't, they think it's, you know, you know, we're past that in this age of enlightenment that we can move on and we know that that didn't really happen. And so they pick and choose parts of the gospel narrative and they doubt it. Albert Moeller writes that liberalism believed that the virgin birth was a humiliating supernatural assertion and Protestant liberalism tried to save, think of this, save the Christian faith from this embarrassing claim. He says, and then he says, skeptics of the virgin birth, if consistent, must doubt all other supernatural elements in the Gospels, like the presence of mer- the miracles or, or the empty tomb. And he's, he then uh, has this quote from Augustine, who also in his day, in the fourth century, people were, were, were kind of ashamed of the vir- idea of the, the virgin birth and uh, supernatural conception there. And, and Augustine says, So what do the so-called wise and prudent think of this great miracle? Well, they prefer to think of it as a nice story than a hard fact. So when it comes to Christ appearing as man and God, clearly a divine consideration, they run into trouble. They think it beneath them to believe that there are are things that aren't human. That are in fact things, they think it beneath them to think that there are in fact things that are divine. To them, it's just plain embarrassing that God would, should walk around in a silly, ill-fitting body. But he goes on and says, to us, of course, it's a genuinely encouraging sight. To put it another way, which will truly appear perverse to the unwise and imprudent, the more impossible the virgin birth of a human being appears to them, the more divine it seems to us. I love that. I love that. Friends, if, if you will admit that God created this universe, that this universe did not come out of nothing, that something did not come out of nothing. And the scripture's testimony that God spoke into existence, you have no reason to doubt Luke or Mary or Elizabeth or John or the virgin birth or God himself. As Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Friends, the question is, do you believe? The question is, when you look at these Advent narratives, does it move you? Do you respond with faith or do you respond with doubt? And if you respond with doubt, where's it come from? Pay very close attention to it. Figure out what its source is and consider whether or not it's actually appropriate. Jesus would say to Thomas who doubted, blessed are those who have not yet seen and believed. And so may we have that sort of faith this morning. 
So should we respond with doubt? Absolutely not. The only appropriate response to the advent of the Messiah is faith. May the light of God's word banish the darkness of doubts in our hearts this morning. This leads to our second question, though. Should we respond with ingratitude? How do, we, how do you think that we should respond to the arrival of Messiah? Is ingratitude in the realm of, of proper responses to his coming? You won't find that sort of a response from John or Elizabeth or Mary. If you look at this passage, we see John's joy. We see Elizabeth's gratitude. We see Mary's rejoicing. Let's look first at John's joy in verse 41. It says that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For, when, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. We're told in, in chapter 1, verse 15, that John, uh, Zechariah's son, would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. And that his whole job is to testify and be a forerunner of the Messiah to prepare the people to turn to the Lord. And so even from the womb, John the Baptist testifies through his joyful leap. He straight kicks his mommy and says, that's the Messiah. That's him. He's here. He's here. And, and if you look at John in the Gospel of John, one of the things John the Baptist says is, is that, right, it, it, he, he's like, he's the one who rejoices for the bridegroom. And so here we see his joy. Here we see his testimony. And, and here we see, by that power of the Holy Spirit, John's joy at the arrival of the Messiah. But likewise, we also see Elizabeth's gratitude. Elizabeth, it says that she, when she heard the greeting of Mary, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And pay close attention here. And then she says, and why has this, or why has this been granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Does that sound like ingratitude to you? If you're going to interview Elizabeth and say, Elizabeth, what did you... What were you thinking? What were you feeling when, when that happened? I think she, she could pick up no better word than grateful or thankful. And, and she is so thankful that she erupts with a blessing on Mary. She says, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. You realize, Elizabeth realizes that the Messiah is in Mary's stomach. And you have to realize that, that generations of faithful women all the way back to Eve could only have dreamed, could only have dreamed that they would have the privilege and the honor and the blessing and the grace gift to be the woman, to be the mother of the Lord. That's like, that's like winning the lottery. That's like, but except there's lots of lotteries. So combine all the lotteries that ever have happened into one lottery and, and combine all the prize money and it's pulled one time and you get it. <laughs> what an amazing honor. Elizabeth recognizes that, that Mary's blessed above all women because of that thing. Not because Mary is great, not because Mary has merited it, not because Mary has earned it or deserved it, but because God is gracious and has blessed her. Blessed is she 
And blessed is the fruit of her womb. What does that mean, the fruit of her womb? It means the baby that's inside her belly. And so this is a tremendous blessing because the baby inside her belly, Elizabeth goes on to say, is the mother, or is the Lord. And she calls Mary the mother of my Lord. Now, what's, what's Elizabeth saying when she says that Mary is, calls Mary the mother of my Lord? Elizabeth is here expressing the deepest sense of, of gratitude. And, and the word for Lord here, it can be used as, in a polite sense of like sir or master, something like that. Uh, but this word is used all over the place in the Old Testament to refer specifically to God, uh, to Yahweh. Um, and then in the New Testament as well, it's, it's, it's used in that way. It, and so when she says that, when she calls uh, calls Mary the mother of my Lord. By Lord, I think that she is intending under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to recognize the deity of Jesus as the divine Messiah. John Calvin says this, she calls Mary the mother of her Lord. This denotes a unity of person in the two natures of Christ. As if she had said that he who was begotten a mortal man in the womb of Mary is at the same time the eternal God. For we must bear in mind that she does not speak like an ordinary woman at her own suggestion, but utters what was dictated by the Holy Spirit. The name Lord strictly belongs to the Son of God who is manifested in the flesh uh, and who has received from the Father all power and has been appointed the highest ruler of heaven and earth that by his agency God may govern all things, end quote. So when Elizabeth says, mother of my, calls her the mother of my Lord, she is recognizing that God the Son, who existed in eternity with the Father and with the Spirit, in the fullness of time, became incarnate. He put on human flesh. He added to, to, his, his, to his person a, a, a human nature. That person, that God the Son, who existed with a divine nature for all eternity, did not give it up, did not lose any of it, did not cease to, to, to hold all of it, but added to his person full humanity so that he is fully God and fully man, even as an, as an infant in the womb. And so this is what Mary recognizes she, or excuse me, this is what Elizabeth recognizes that she has visiting her that's in Mary's womb. And of course, she is honored. She is rocked by this gift of grace. And she says, why? Essentially, why me? Why me? What have I done to deserve such an honor? You guys know that that's the heart of gratitude. It, it, it gets to that place where I don't, even, I don't deserve this, but God, you've graciously given it to me. Why me? Only humble people say that. Only those who fear the Lord say that. Those who are proud of heart, those who are arrogant, they're like, they don't say, why me? They know why, because they're great. <laughs> I'm awesome. God made me dope. That's why. You don't, ever, you don't see a proud person asking, asking why me in stunned gratitude, because they think that they deserved it and they earned it. But Elizabeth here says, why me, oh Lord. And so you could just think of what an honor. Maybe you think, wow, I wish that that could happen to me. That would have been awesome. 
that I've really been life-changing. That, that God sent the mother of his son to go and to visit you. What an amazing honor. I want you to know that maybe you didn't have the mother of your Lord come to you, and maybe you didn't have you know, Gabriel and Angel come to you, but you did have someone, if not many people, come to you. And maybe they didn't have the Lord in their bellies, but they had the Lord in their heart. And they proclaimed to you the good news about Jesus. You knew that you were a sinner, but you heard about God's grace and mercy in sending his son to save sinners like you and me from their sins. You heard about a God who is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. You heard and were, uh, you heard how he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death to pay for your sins. You heard how he rose again from the dead. You heard how he appeared to disciples and ascended into heaven. And you started reading and you started learning more and you started believing and you started listening to more teaching. Started listening to more preaching. God in his might and grace removed the veil from your eyes and you believe these glorious truths and he filled you with his spirit and you called upon his name and the magnitude of what you received by grace through faith was nothing short of astounding. You were adopted. You were welcomed in. You were forgiven. You were, you were made love. You were made his own. You were made his children. You were declared righteous in God's eyes. You were forgiven all your sins. The rags of unrighteousness that clothed you, God removed and gave you the perfect purple robe of the righteousness of Christ. And you were brought into a church raised in a community you were nurtured in a fellowship of faithful followers of the messiah who cultivated love for you and continue to teach you and correct you and help you walk a life of faithfulness in short your life has been forever changed because someone came to you in fact many people with god in them to preach to you the word of god to disciple you in the ways of the messiah all the while millions have never had what you and I have. Why us? Why us? What an honor. What a privilege. Who are we that God might draw near? We're sinners, we're unclean. He's holy. We've rebelled. Why us? What a privilege. One commentator wrote, I fear that what will surprise us most when we see our Lord will be the extent of our own ingratitude. Should we respond with ingratitude? We should have been scattered, brought down, humbled, sent away empty, but he redeemed us, rescued us, saved us, filled us with good things, and exalted us in our lowly state. How could we not be grateful? There's no place for ingratitude when it comes to hearing and receiving and believing these truths about Advent. Lastly then, should we respond to the Advent of the Messiah with indifference? With indifference. To you know, I'll put this another way, is can we hear these things and just kind of be like, eh, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, we just do that in December. We talk about this stuff, and, but, you know, I'm actually looking more forward to, you know, the next thing. <laughs> I 
do you believe that faith in these things and gratitude will allow you to be silent or indifferent about these matters? I believe that no one who has truly received the grace of God remains indifferent about it. God bestows, excuse me, in God's bestowal of grace, we have a divine gift, brothers and sisters, that makes war on ingratitude and indifference. I think if you were to walk up to the meanest, baddest, most gangster guy ever. He's got like, you know, Glocks in his pockets and AK-47s on his back. And, and he's just he mean mugging you. And you walk. And you take from out from behind your back. And you, with the voice of an angel, sir, this is for you. And give him some flowers. What's going to happen? I think that his hardness is going to melt faster than a Hershey's bar on the... (laughs) Than a Hershey's bar in the sun in Arizona in like 105 degree weather. Why? Because you can't help it when you receive a gift that you don't deserve. It makes you smile. It changes you. And you, 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 don't just, <laughs> you don't just receive these things and do nothing and just remain unchanged, but you smile and, and you express gratitude. Gratitude is completed when it's expressed. And it's expressed in a, in a thank you, right? Whoever, whoever thought, yeah, I really expressed my gratitude, but I never said thank you. Same thing with our praise to God. We can't, this is not just something that we hide in our hearts. It should be hidden in our hearts, but come out and be completed and fulfilled in our praise. And so Mary cannot help it. She will not be indifferent. She will erupt in praise. And that's exactly what she does in the Magnificat which we'll go through quickly in our, in, our, in our time here. But I like it. One, one, John Livingston said, Alas for that capital crime of the Lord's people, barrenness in praises. He calls barrenness in praises the capital crime of the Lord's people. Who are better equipped? Who are more, you know, more, who are more likely who, who, who should give praise to God more than those who have been redeemed? How could we be barren with praises? Mary is not barren with praises. Look at what she says here. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So Mary begins here, by lifting up song, a song of praise to God for who God is. He is my God and my Savior. And Mary says that. She says it with her lips, but she says it with all of her soul. She's not just drawing near to the Lord with her lips, 
and her heart is far from him, but lips and heart together, that is offering authentic adoration to God because she has experienced tremendous grace and she is grateful and her gratitude erupts in praise to God. She will not remain indifferent because she is after all speaking and praising God, her savior. And it's important point to see Mary say here that God is Mary's savior. I think that it makes it abundantly clear that Mary needs a savior. That's right. All the Protestants said, <laughs> amen. Yeah, she needs a deliverer because she herself, along with the rest of humankind, has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. This argues against the Roman Catholic teaching of Mary's immaculate conception or the idea that Mary, by a special act of grace, when she was conceived by her mother, was made immune from all sin, personal or inherited, and thus had no sin, was free from all blemish of sin, never sinned in her life, and nor was she subject to the curse. Protestants do not believe that about Mary because we don't see that in the scripture about Mary. Not because we got anything, any beef with Mary. We love Mary. Can we all say that again? We love Mary. <laughs> we bless Mary. Blessed are you <laughs> among women, Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. We got no problem with that. But when we elevate Mary and teach things about Mary that the scriptures do not clearly teach about Mary, we are going at, at, at worst into doctrinal error, at best into just empty speculative theologizing. And the problem with this is that the Catholic Church in the last couple hundred years has made these things dogma, meaning that if you reject them, then you're, it's just, in essence, you're rejecting the whole faith over something that's not even clearly taught in the scripture. So we see Mary say, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary is amazing. She is faithful. She is wonderful. She is a perfect example. Maybe not perfectly perfect example, but she is a great example for us and for believers and for the church of what it looks like to hear the word of God, believe the word of God, and obey the word of God. But she still needs a savior. She still needs a savior. And that's who God is to her. And it, it, it is Mary praising God because he has provided through the baby in her womb the sacrifice for her sins and the savior of her soul. And Mary goes on to praise God for that and, and demonstrates this in her song, specifically focusing on the might and the mercy and the holiness of God. I want you to just look quickly, verse 48, he has looked down on the humble estate of his servant. We see mercy there. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me. We see the might of God emphasized. The doing great things for me is mercy, but then also in holy is his name. What is the, the might and the mercy? Who, what is the determining factor? How do we know that God doesn't err in giving too much mercy or that he errs in giving too much judgment? It's that holy is his name. He is the rock. All his ways are perfect a God of faithfulness and righteousness. He is upright. In him is light and there is no darkness at all. We see his might and we see his mercy. Verse 50 says his mercy is for those 
who fear him. Verse 51 says that he has shown strength with his arm. That's might. And he scattered the proud of their th- in the thoughts of their hearts. That's his might on display. That he brought down the mighty from their thrones. That's his might on display. And exalted those of humble state. That's his mercy. And he filled the hungry with good things. That's his mercy. And he sent away the, the rich. He sent away empty. They thought they had it all together. They thought they were powerful. They thought they were secure. They thought that they were safe. But riches and wealth do not deliver in the day of wrath, Proverbs 11 says. And those who thought they were safe, those who thought they would conquer, or you just look to Pharaoh. You just look to Nebuchadnezzar. You just look to Sennacherib. What happened in all those cases? God scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart and brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble estate. This is what he does. Says he helped his servant Israel. That's might. And then he says in remembrance, he did that in remembrance of his mercy. Obviously, that's more mercy. And then it says, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And that again is his holiness. Perfect. He has said something and he will see that it is fulfilled. The Lord God is a God of might and mercy. And he looks on the humble. It's, it, there, there should be no more encouraging thing to you this morning than that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Because that means that no matter what you've done in your life, no matter what sin you're ashamed of, that you have found yourself here and the gospel is being proclaimed to you, you can humble yourself, turn from your sins, repent, believe in Christ, and obtain the mercy of God. You can cry out to God, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and you can go home justified. And oh, do you need to go home justified? Because without it, we are condemned. And without it, we have all of his might wielded against us. We have him pulling back his divine bow of wrath aimed at us because of our rebellion. And those who persist in the proudness of their hearts will be laid low. But those who humble themselves before the Lord will be exalted. The meek shall inherit the earth and live with Christ in his kingdom. This is our God. We can't be indifferent about it. When we know these things, when we believe these things, when we understand these things, how, how can we not praise him? How can we remain silent? How can we just be like, eh, yeah, that's kind of cool. How can we not tell people How could we not lift up our voices and praise him? This is our God. So how shall we respond to all these things? What is the appropriate response to the arrival of the Messiah? By God's grace, we're all here convinced, I hope, that we will not respond with doubt. We're not going to doubt Luke. We're not going to doubt Gabriel. We're not going to doubt Mary. We're not going to doubt God or John or Elizabeth. And we're not going to respond with ingratitude. We're not going to just sit there with, with cold hearts in light of the wonderful things that have been revealed and given. But with, because we have received it by faith, we will have John's joy, Elizabeth's gratitude, and Mary's rejoicing. 
And that that won't just be something we do in our be something we do with all our souls and all our bodies and with our mouths especially praising God for his salvation. We will believe, we will rejoice, we will praise him. Faith, joyful gratitude, and, and praise. These are our gold, frankincense, and myrrh. May we respond appropriately this Advent season and may our hearts overflow with adoration to the newborn king. Father, we, we're, we're full, Lord. Your word is living food for famished souls. And we have just eaten and partook. And like beggars, Lord, All by your grace, you have reached out and fed us. And we have reached forth our hand in faith and taken of that bread and brought it to our mouths and have eaten and have been satisfied and have been filled with gratitude and joy. And we say, thank you, Lord. And we lift up our voices to praise you now because you're worthy of it. And we do it in joyful, grateful adoration. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.